0: So today's episode is going to be sort of a One Health-esque type of theme. We're bringing on Dr. Jockers, who of course is a human doctor, but there is so much and so many tidbits here that relate to dogs and cats.
1: Yeah. I mean, this One Health initiative, this concept of one world medicine, that what applies to the human health space absolutely applies to pets and vice versa. Not only is that where medicine is headed, but we can all learn a lot, not only to take care of our bodies, but our pets' bodies as well.
0: Exactly. So hope you enjoyed today. There's a lot to learn for yourself and for your pets. Here we go in three, two, one, and welcome to another Mind Jam podcast. And today we are joined by Dr. David Jockers, who's taken the time out of his day to be with us. Dr. Jockers, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. So good to be on with you guys. Uh, Always been an admirer of Dr. Becker and her work And uh, Rodney, you're just such an awesome guy. I really loved meeting you a few years ago, and
0: uh, we've been connecting since then. Thanks, brother. I want to start it off with, did you see that video that was all over the internet that coconut oil was terrible for dogs and that feeding coconut oils to your dogs and fat is a big, giant mistake? Did you happen to check that out?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't agree with that, you know, that coconut oil is that bad for us. I think that was kind of overstated. I think that in general, too much long chain fats can have a potential to to have problems. If we have leaky gut, those longer chain fats can be a carrier to bring endotoxin, which is this bacterial debris into the bloodstream, which can cause more inflammation in the body. So coconut oil, you have roughly 60% of it that's medium chain fats, and then another 40% that's longer chain fats. And the way you wanna counter that is actually by uh, combining it with polyphenols. Those polyphenols actually have a little bit of an antimicrobial effect or a neutralizing effect on the anti- on the endotoxin. And so when you add in things like um like for for a pet, you could easily just put in a little bit of oregano or you know basil or something like that, some thyme that's in their meal., uh, so just some natural herbs. So just by adding some of those things in there, you add some polyphenols which can help prevent any sort of endotoxin-mediated inflammation that would come from the long-chain fats.
0: A lot of people sort of missed all the little, let's just say, key tidbits that were in that interview. We got to, right after it immediately, I remember I reached out to Karen Kirsnan and I I had a phone call with him. I had to know what on earth he was talking about because he said there was a peer-reviewed study that was gonna be coming out in the future. Now, some things that he did mention that were missed in that were, first and foremost, that these animals did have leaky gut right? So they were suffering from an issue and they were high load feeding them the coconut oil in conjunction with a big giant bowl of kibble, which is very high in carbohydrates, right? This was something that was happening on a reoccurring basis. He did mention in it that, of course, if you had a healthy gut, like you said, it's always important to fix the gut, that they didn't see those Terrible responses. They were getting those responses with dogs with a really messed up GI system. Now, you have this incredible protocol, which you are about healing. Uh, the, is it the bile? Is it is it a, a bile cleanse? You say, or or am I getting that right? There's something that that's very important first to you and your patients.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the book, I talk a lot about improving stomach acid levels, improving bioflow. So when we eat a protein-based meal, we've got to get like reading eating a steak or something like that, we've got to get our stomach acid down between 1.5 and 2.2 in order to digest that meal effectively. For a lot of people, due to stress, stress we call the antagonist to good digestion. If you're under stress you're not gonna be able to digest your meal well, right? So due to stress or chronic stress that you may have been under, you know, also due to uh, age, oftentimes nutrient deficiencies like zinc deficiencies and things like that, a lot of people aren't producing enough stomach acid levels. So they're not sterilizing their food and breaking down their protein effectively. Dogs in general, a lot of animals get produce tremendous amount of stomach acid. That's what actually allows them to be able to eat roadkill and not, you know, die, die. right? Exactly. <laughs> because... Because they, you know, they're taking in all these toxic microbes from the roadkill, but their stomach is so acidic. They have so much acid in there; it's able to sterilize it. Humans, not quite as much, but still quite a bit, in order to sterilize the meal. If we don't do that, we end up with too much bacteria. We end up with, you know, oftentimes a lot of people with, with low stomach acid will get things like, uh, like, you know, food food illness, right? So they'll just have food that just sits there in their stomach. For example, acid reflux. Believe it or not. Is where we're not producing enough stomach acid that's a big deal and we actually need good enough stomach acid in order to stimulate bile flow but what i found over the years is that if i put somebody on a real food-based nutrient-dense ketogenic diet about roughly two-thirds feel great and get really good results and then there's another third that seem to really struggle. I found that you know a lot of people will have issues. For example, you know, I have a lot of people that have bile stones, right? gallstones in their liver, right? And they're not, they have very sluggish, poor bile flow. And so when you increase the amount of fat in your diet, you need more bile to help emulsify that. And you're trying to pump it out, but you can't because these bile ducts are blocked you're going to have a lot of issues. So a lot of people would have stomach issues, digestive issues, nausea, right? Different things like that. For a lot of people are not producing enough stomach acid, not producing enough bile, not producing enough of these pancreatic enzymes. So they end up, you know, basically with undigested food that becomes a breeding ground for bad bacteria and they end up with a whole whole bunch of different issues. So in the book, you know, again, I talk about ketosis as a tool, right? It's an amazing tool to suppress insulin to help increase the amount of mitochondria, which again, produce all the cell, all the energy within all the cells of our body to help reduce inflammation in our brain. But we also need to really optimize our digestive system. So that way we can actually break down all these good foods we're putting in our body, break down the, the healthy fats and things like that, and be able to actually absorb them effectively and keep our, our microbiome like a well manicured lawn rather than, you know, a wild field.
1: And, you know, what is your suggestion uh, for people or animals that, that have had their gallbladders removed? Do they just need to take ox bile orally? Do they just take a replacement or and digestive enzymes ox bile? Or what's your thoughts? If you, Do you still advocate a ketogenic diet if you have no gallbladder?
2: You know, first thing, we definitely want to help clean up any sort of bile sludge, right? And I have a protocol in there. There's certain herbs and bile salts things like taurine and uh, choline and things like that. There are certain bile salts that are helpful. And we can also do stomach acid and bile supports. So typically when people do not have enough or poor bile flow, they're usually lacking the stomach acid. Because again, the stomach acid helps trigger the bile flow. So it usually goes hand in hand. So taking in supplements that have both hydrochloric acid and ox bile can be extremely helpful. And then people that don't have a gallbladder, You know, I've seen it run the gamut. I've seen people, some people that don't have a gallbladder that for some reason can still do great eating one meal a day, one or two meals a day, eating larger meals and they still do fine. And I've had other people where no way, there's no way that they could do that. They feel really queasy or nauseous or you get um, cramping and stomach pain and things like that when you do eat a larger meal. Then what that means is it's more important to be in that kind of ketogenic template, right? Either smaller meals, smaller amounts of fats, And actually taking in a little bit more MCT fats, which would be like the coconut fats or using like an MCT oil as opposed to longer chain fats that we might find in, you know, fatty cuts of meat or olive oil or something like that are easier. Because the MCTs don't depend on bile to be metabolized, whereas olive oil is basically all long chain fat, all long chain monounsaturated fat. You need good bile flow in order to break down olive oil. Okay, now olive oil is a great food, but if you're not producing the bile well, then that can be an issue. And then beyond that, just yeah, we have a bile sludge protocol, I have it in the book. Um, Using things like activated charcoal, actually taking that before a meal, taking it roughly 30 minutes to an hour before a meal, can help pull out bad toxic bile that's in the system. And then also using a lot of those bitter herbs. You know, There's a phrase, bitter is good for the liver, right? So bitter herbs, bitter foods, are one of the best things you could be consuming on a daily basis for your liver and your gallbladder. When you're eating a processed diet, processed foods tend to flavor, you know, they tend to be very sweet, right, or salty. We lose that bitterness. Now, if you watch an animal like a dog or a cat or something like that, they'll go outside and they'll like munch on grass. You know, grass naturally is bitter. They'll munch on dandelions and different things like that out there. And it's just kind of part of their their primal instinct. And these things are all great for their digestive system. They're all antimicrobial, so they help to kill off bad microbes that are in their system. It's just kind of part of who they are and what they do. So for humans, you know, which is where I'm an expert, we really try to focus on getting dandelion, parsley, cilantro, radishes, arugula, different things like that, which are all very low carb. Foods that are all very you know ketogenic in a sense because they're not going to raise your insulin and they're going to help support good thin bile right which is very important for helping emulsify these fats so consuming more of those types of foods that help to stimulate bile flow and uh, grabbing up any sort of toxic bile or bile stones with activated charcoal can be really really helpful and then there's other supplements that can be helpful as well
0: in that I think what's super exciting uh, dr. Jockers about this is the fact that a lot of the trialing that was done a few years ago was on dogs to see dr. Thomas Seafried and dr. Thomas Seafried working in collaboration with dr. Dominic D'Agostino and quest nutrition and they they put together the the nonprofit sanctuary keto pets and they wanted to know you know was this thing was this thing even doable because as as we sat down with the owner of quest nutrition ron Penna. and we said why the heck dogs like why did you choose dogs right and he said well first and foremost we love dogs but mm-hmm. secondly dogs are so much more disciplined than humans because you know <laughs> they don't cheat like humans cheat we were able to be <laughs> validate if we could get those numbers and figures on dogs
2: i mean i think that's a great point right so uh, you know a dog is going to eat what you feed it right so what's there and as an animal i mean just putting them on a ketogenic diet they seem to thrive on that sort of diet and obviously
0: you know, that's what's been shown there. So yeah, it makes total sense. One of the big things that came out of this, of course, in the canine world, was the fact that it seemed like ketogenic diets were just for cancer, because the, the focus was so heavy on cancer. But what you're finding, and in your book, it seems like it's so much more than just cancer.
2: Oh, absolutely, right? So a ketogenic diet is going to be amazing for your energy and your brain function. And when we suppress insulin and our body starts to take fatty acids and produce ketones out of them. And really what ketones are, they're byproducts of fat metabolism and they have a unique element in that they're water soluble. So fatty acids are not, ketones are. And ketones are small and they can slip into the blood-brain barrier and be a fuel source for the brain. So the brain itself can't make energy out of fatty acids, but it can from ketones. And they're a very clean energy source. So when we're burning sugar, or in our blood it's called glucose, which is form of sugar, we can produce energy, but it's a lot lower. We produce significantly less energy than when we produce, when we uh, burn ketones. And when we're burning sugar, we produce a lot of oxidative stress. So a lot of free radicals, lots of oxidative stress. So this is why I call it a dirty fuel, right? It's a very dirty fuel source. We need it for certain times, however, we don't want our body running off of that. majority of the time. Whereas ketones are very clean energy, right? So we produce less oxidative stress, less pollution, and we produce significantly more energy. So you think about a, a vehicle that gets better gas mileage, less carbon emissions and better overall performance. That's really what we have when we've got ketones. So one of the best benefits is actually the mental benefits. Ketones have been shown to significantly reduce inflammation in the brain. When we think about irritability, anxiety, depression, uh, people with anger problems, these are all characterized by inflammation in the brain. When you have less inflammation in your brain, you tend to be more calm, more at peace, more relaxed, you have more resilience, you're able to handle more stress, you're able to react better, you think sharper, quicker, you have better memory. I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? All of us, And we're trying to produce uh, at a high level, and we're high achievers, we want the best mental faculties, and when our bot, when our brain is is burning ketones, it's going to give us the best the best uh, advantage
1: there. So I have a question pertaining to that because when we made the dog cancer series, which was really an instructional tutorial on how to literally walk through with a pet parent how to get their dog into ketosis for an intensive 120 day metabolic strategy specifically for cancer. What we realized is that a lot of pet parents were like, oh my gosh, this makes total sense. I'm just going to put my dog in ketosis and keep them in it in perpetuity. I'm just gonna never take them out of ketosis. What's your take on being in ketosis all the time? I guess I was thinking that part of the magic of the metabolic yeah. unfolding of the magic is the cycling in and out. But, but what's your take on how long is too long?
2: Uh, that's a very good point, Dr. Becker. And I look at it like a bell curve. I think at one end of the bell curve, you've got people who probably thrive being in ketosis all the time. And you've got another end of the bell curve where those people rarely need to be in ketosis. Okay. And then you've got kind of like this middle group that does really well spending, you know, about half the time or so in ketosis and about half the time out of ketosis. And you think about our ancestors, and they were never trying to be in ketosis, they were just in ketosis based on the fact that. Uh, you know, oftentimes they'd have to go days without food, or, you know, if they, if all the food they had, because the harvest wasn't good, um, or if it was the winter time or whatever it was, was this animal that they just killed, that's basically all they were able to eat. And so they were just being ketosis based on, uh, you know, what food that was available to them. And so when they had food, though, whether it was berries, or root vegetables, or whatever it was that they got their hands on, they would feast. And so it was this feast, famine cycle. And when we feast and we famine, there's great genetic benefits that take place in our body. And see, one of the big issues we have in our society, and it's the same in the pet world, is we're eating consistently throughout the day. So we're eating you know, four, five, six meals a day, which basically keeps our insulin elevated all day long. And, that, and that's really problematic for our body, okay, in general. Unless you're like an athlete, and you're you know, obviously training hours a day, you really don't wanna be doing that. When we eat and we feast in like one, maybe two eating periods during a day, our overall insulin load, if we were to eat all of that, that same food just split up into let's say four or five meals, is actually reduced, reduced about 20%. And so you want to, in a sense, prime the insulin, so you wanna suppress it, and then you know, basically get your body to kind of shoot it up for a short period of time right? And that's where you get the benefits, okay? So then the body says, okay, I'm, food is prevalent. I've got food around. I can do all the different metabolic activities that I need. I don't need to go into starvation mode. You know, if you're in ketosis too long and you don't have enough body fat on you, then your body's going to go into a state of, of starvation. It's going to downregulate your active thyroid hormone in order to try to preserve lean body mass. Uh, oftentimes, you'll have elevated levels of stress hormones like cortisol. So it's this feast famine cycling that tends to work best. And so if I were to look at the pet world, I would say pets that have a higher amount of body fat, right, which should be you should be able to easily tell visibly, right, are going to do better in a state of ketosis for a longer period of time until they trim down. Your leaner animals, you'll want to kind of cycle. Uh so adding in some healthier carbs. And you mentioned the microbiome, right? And so there are healthier carbohydrate sources that also help to feed good healthy bacteria, right? So root vegetables would be one of those good sources. And, um, you know, again, just kind of cycling it, cycling it through, I think is really important. And when you reduce the overall amount of meals, right, I don't really think any of us unless we're, you know, pregnant, need to be consuming really more than than two meals a day. Okay, and so, you know, consuming that one to two meal kind of, kind of cycle time period I think can be really really helpful.
0: I found it fascinating, you know, now there's there was a couple of studies that have been coming out recently where in the pet space they're trying to see if the ketogenic diet or you know getting your dog in that sort of state of ketosis had an effect on epilepsy and seizures and they were seeing a a huge reduction in seizure frequency so and and, you know and in the pet space there's a lot sadly today there's a lot of especially dogs and cats that seizure a lot and you know incorporating according to science this ketogenic diet saw a a reduction what was fascinating was this is kind of making its way into the processed food realms I know that uh, Purina was very famous for a study. They found that by adding MCTs to their bags of kibble, that they were able to see small reductions in seizures. Now, of course, nobody correlated it to fat, the increase in fat content, they just correlated it to MCTs in specific. But Dr. Jockers, now we're seeing in our pet space, company after company after company in sort of like the process realm area that are opening up with what they call keto kibbles and keto supplements and of course in the human space there's keto drinks and shakes and bars and how does one decipher through all of that is it should you walk around with that sort of with a little bit of caution when you're looking at these like that keto chocolate bar or that keto drink that says drink and be instantly in ketosis
2: yeah, I definitely think you need to be, have some caution with it. Obviously, you know anything can be highly marketed, and I imagine for some of these products, you know they've put in some sort of MCT oil. And the unique thing about MCT oil is your body converts it into ketones quickly, particularly when it's the C8 only MCT oil. So when you look at MCTs, it's C8, which is a which means a eight carbon chain fatty acid, C10, and C12. C8 and C10 are the most ketogenic, with C8 being the most ketogenic, meaning that it turns into ketones the quickest, right? So a lot of times, like coconut oil has a lot of C12, so it doesn't turn into ketones as quickly as your C8 or your C10-based MCT oils, okay? So that's basically why they're putting that in there, and yeah, it can have a, you know, obviously effect at boosting some ketones. And there's research out there that shows that even if you're having a higher carbohydrate meal, you'll actually blunt higher blood glucose and higher insulin levels by having some sort of MCTs present, right? So there can be some benefit to that. But in general, we want to try to stick with as much real food as possible. So if you're eating a lot of processed bars, lots of processed powders, processed shakes, and things like that, I just don't think that that's going to be, you know, the best approach, right? It's not really an ancestral approach. You know, depending on you know, how they're processing it, because there's a wide range. There's people are doing a lot better than other people. So, you know, we can't put everybody in the same the same category, but you know, there's a lot of junk food out there, right? That's kind of masqueraded as natural and healthy. And, uh, you know, we want to avoid that as much as possible and, and try again, stick with real foods. The same for the pet space, right? Pets are gonna thrive on, you know, a meat-based diet, right? Meat, eggs, different things like that, butter, you know, trying to get some of those good, healthy fats they really thrive on a lot of those animal foods. Maybe there's a time and place for some of these processed foods for specific you know periods of time, maybe you're traveling or th- something along those lines. But ideally, you're trying at least like an 80-20 principle where you're trying to do real foods 80% of the time, restrict that eating window, The same thing with the animal, um, restrict that feeding window. And if you do that, I think you're going to get the kind of ketosis being in that state of nutritional ketosis that comes naturally from your body burning its own body fat that we're really looking
0: for you know one of the challenges that we have in sort of our world in our pet space is the fact that everybody you know when you, if you've got a dog with a massive tumor on the side of its body or a dog that's seizuring and, and as a pet parent you're running to one of these products these processed products on the shelf People are grabbing these products, Dr. Jockers, and they're feeding it to their pets and they're saying, my pet's in ketosis, because it says on the bag, ketogenic dog food. Yet that tumor, for some reason, is still growing and my dog is constantly gaining weight weight or (laughs) seizuring. How can one, like, what is the best practice here? Do do we just want to go by the label and assume that our, our pets are in ketosis?
2: Yeah, I mean, great question. Well, the only real way that we're going to know if they're in ketosis is actually measuring it. So you can get a glucometer. I don't know if there's one specifically for the pet space, but, uh, but basically you could do a prick, right, and get a little bit of blood. And you can actually test to see if they are in nutritional ketosis for sure. And so I think that's always important. And then remembering that it doesn't really matter. Like the food could be a ketogenic template meal, right, have all the right macronutrients. But if they are feeding and grazing throughout the day on it, they're gonna continue to bump up their insulin and that's not gonna allow them. As long as insulin is at a certain threshold level, it's not gonna allow their body to start breaking down the fat and creating the ketones. So again, restricting, doing that time-restricted feeding and actually measuring to make sure that they're getting into ketosis would be the way to do it.
0: In the pet world, Dr. Becker and I talk about this all the time, one of the most popular ways to feed your pet is free feeding. So the obesity rate in pets and in humans, they mirror each other, right? Right now, dogs are are borderlining 60% and cats are well up into the 60s, according to research. Pet owners, when you sit with some of them and ask them, like, how much are you actually feeding your pet? They have no idea. They're just like, the bowl is there. I fill it throughout the day. And, you know, the dog, they'll come by when they're hungry, hungry, they'll graze, right? So there's that constant, constant going back and forth to the bowl, as you said, you know, having those shots of glucose, having those elevated levels of insulin throughout the entire day. You've been always a very vocal leader in the fasting space. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we've had this conversation many times when it comes to fasting, animals a lot of people dr jokers they will shy away because when people think about fasting they think about like not feeding their animals for days right or even just a full 24 hours seems kind of barbaric but it looks like today in today's uh, ecosystem especially in the human space that there are other ways to fast it's not just not eating for for like days upon days is that is that correct
2: Oh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of different ways. So intermittent fasting, or what we call time restricted feeding, uh, is more so like fasting, how do you fast in like a 24 hour period. And so you can do something like, like, you know, for example, you know, a great one for for animals, unless they're very, very active, unless you're getting them out doing a lot of activity is doing one meal a day. Okay, just one meal a day. Animals by nature, the primal instinct is to eat until fully satiated right if food is there they're going to eat till they're fully satiated so if you free feed they're just going to constantly keep going back to it okay because again our primal instinct is we never know when food's going to run out so we're just going to keep going you know hit the bowl they don't know that you've got a pantry there necessarily right where you can just consistently keep the food up so they're that's just their primitive nature and so if you just give them you know in a sense a one hour period of time to consume their food Overall, their amount of insulin that they're going to release throughout the day is significantly less, roughly like 50% less than uh, the amount that it would be if you just free fed them throughout the day. And that's key because insulin is a very critical hormone, but we need ourselves to be very sensitive to it. And if we keep it elevated throughout the day, we're going to lose that that cellular sensitivity, and we're not going to be able to get nutrients into the cell. And so, you know, when we start to lose that resistance or start to lose that sensitivity, it's kind of like you know going and knocking on a door, and nobody's listening, right? And so you got to knock harder and harder and harder. So you need more and more insulin. And insulin, when it's elevated in our bloodstream, it turns on pro-inflammatory gene pathways, something called, it activates the inflammasome, which is like an amplifier of inflammation throughout the body. So in a sense, it's kind of like, we know a fireplace in a house is a beautiful thing, right? It keeps the house warm uh, and cozy. But if you take gasoline and you pour it on the on the fire, obviously now it's gonna burn down the walls. That's kind of what happens when we have this elevated level of insulin. It's like pouring gasoline on the fire and now it's just burning up the house. And so we're amplifying inflammation throughout the body. So we just wanna keep insulin under control. For most animals, one meal a day works great. Now, if they're very, very lean and you're worried about them losing weight, maybe do two meals a day. I'm not necessarily against that. Uh, But, you know, the majority of pets that, you know, Dr. Becker, you just touched on that majority of pets are overweight, right? They're struggling with metabolic diseases. Those pets will do great on one feeding a day. And the other good thing about only eating once a day is you have more tolerance when it comes to carbs, you can actually consume more carbohydrates. Now, I I tend to recommend obviously healthy carbohydrates, you know, don't just throw a whole bunch of bread down or kibbles and bits, you know, for the for the, the the pet. However, you can you have more carbohydrate tolerance, and that also gives you, you know, obviously the, the, the prebiotics for the microbiome, so a lot of other benefits there too.
1: So a study just came out with mice about how a weak enough, high ketogenic ratio, a high fat diet, initially amazing improvement followed by microbiome crash what are some tips and tricks that you would suggest just adding prebiotic fiber i mean what, what's your suggestion on on making sure that animals that are in ketosis are getting enough micronutrients as well as like vitamin d and selenium some of those major yeah. vitamins and minerals that we know also are really important for healthy immune function i think sometimes can be difficult to acquire yeah. how do you how do you do that
2: Yeah, totally. So sometimes in some of those studies, you always have to look at really what they're feeding the animals. So sometimes they're using like processed vegetable oils and things like that, that, you know, we know are hazardous to the gut. So really what we want is a real food-based ketogenic diet. So good, healthy, and ideally getting more grass-fed, organic, pasture-raised animal products. They're gonna have a better fatty acid ratio, more omega-3s, less omega-6. Omega-6 tend to promote inflammation. Omega-3s have that anti-inflammatory effect. They've got more nutrients in them, more conjugated linoleic acid, which is really good for our immune system. So trying to, trying to focus on grass-fed, organic meat, I think is, as a foundation is important, healthy fats, right? Like for example, you've got tons of prebiotics in an avocado, right? So avocado, one avocado actually has as much fiber as one and a half bowls of oatmeal, right? Wow. So we think about oatmeal as this great fiber source, right? But avocado, believe it or not, is a fantastic wow. prebiotic fiber. Yeah. And so that is a fantastic food for us uh, a non starchy vegetables. So broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, asparagus, different things like that. Very, very low in net carbs and net carbs we look at as total carbs minus fiber. Our body doesn't break down fiber and produce glucose. Instead, fiber is metabolized by the microbiome and they produce B vitamins and and things like butyrate, which is a short-chain fatty acid from these things. And so we want to get a lot of those non-starchy vegetables. We also want to use a lot of herbs, basil, oregano, thyme, different things like that. We're all fantastic for our diet. So getting a lot of those types of things in there. Low glycemic fruit, like uh, olives actually, believe it or not, are a fruit, avocados are a fruit, people don't realize that. Uh, also lemons and limes can be really, really helpful as well. Vitamin C, you've got potassium in there, you've got bioflavonoids, which are really amazing for our body. So trying to consume a lot of those things, those are all great foods. And so yeah, trying to get more of those types of vegetables right like if you if you're feeding your dog and you steam up some broccoli and put a whole bunch of grass-fed butter which actually has short chain fatty acids like butyrate which are really helpful for for the gut and fat soluble nutrients like retinol and vitamin D in there and different things like that and you put that on the on the broccoli with you know a slab of healthy meat they're going to love it they're going to eat that right up they're going to enjoy it and now you've got a lot of those good quality prebiotic fibers. And so I think that's really important. And what I have found as well is that there is a subset, particularly in the human population, obviously, I'm not an expert in animals, but there's a subset of the human population actually struggles with too much fiber, right? So and they tend to be individuals that have bacterial overgrowth in their small intestine, and actually consuming too much of these sorts of prebiotic fibers creates a lot of gas, bloating, different things like that. So going you know, even at times trying to find what, what is the optimal level for you? You know what I mean? I think everybody's a little bit different. I talk about that in the book so we can make blanket statements like, you know, eat, six six servings of vegetables every single day but for some individuals they're going to thrive on that other individuals actually need more and then other individuals need a lot less right and so trying to find and customize what what's best for you what works best for you so a lot of times i'll ask people and this is more of a, a people conversation but i'll say okay eat a steak and see how you feel. If you feel sluggish, if you feel bloated, if you've got acid reflux, if you feel like the food's just sitting in your stomach, it's a sign you're not producing enough stomach acid, which is a common problem. We see that with a lot of people. And for some animals, we'll see that. They may have acid reflux or something along those lines. You might see them, There, there are certain signs which you know. And then you can take, you know, then your next meal, just eat a big bowl of broccoli, right? Steamed broccoli and see how you feel after that. For some people, they're gonna feel great. For other people, they're going to have bloating and gas and things like that. And for those people they may not be producing enough digestive enzymes, or they may have too much uh, an overgrowth of bacteria that's in their small intestine, that's causing them to have issues there. So you want to kind of try to customize it um, based on, you know, the issues that you may be dealing with some underlying issues. And then you can also use supplements right in order to help biohack uh, some of those issues. And I talk about that in the book.
1: What do you think about customizing fats, Dr. Jackers, specifically customizing fats pertaining to your DNA or your lineage? We've been talking to a lot of nutrition experts and kind of the a trending topic is to eat from your forefather's table or eat where your lineage or epigenetically where you came from because your DNA is set up to handle that. That has brought us to an interesting crossroads in the pet space because a lot of veterinarians are saying don't ever feed coconut oil to dogs because they didn't evolve eating unless you've got a Polynesian dog they didn't evolve eating coconut oil. How much do how much weight do we need to place in eating foods that maybe don't genetically resonate with us? Is that even a thing?
2: I mean, I think it's a good theory. We don't we don't know enough about it at this point. I think it's a good idea. You know, typically what I'll recommend is you know, trying to just be in touch with how your body responds to certain foods, right? And, you know, listening to your body. And I think a big part of the health process is is mastering the responses, the biofeedback that your body gives you. And so I think that's a big component of this. And so, uh, you know, for me, I tend to respond great to coconut oil, you know, I'm, uh, I, I'm English and French, right? And, uh, you know, French, Spanish, uh, and German. So I've got a little bit of all that Northern European in me. They probably had never seen, my answer probably never seen a coconut, but I seem to feel great when I'm consuming coconut, right? So I I more trust how my body's responding and how I'm feeling when I'm consuming different things, uh, as opposed to just strictly based off genetic heritage. But um, But I don't think it's a bad thing. I think, you know, hey, if you feel like, you want to stick with more olive oil then great you know go go with the olive oil and then watch with your dog like if your dog's showing signs of acid reflux or they're hacking stuff up or they've got diarrhea after the after you you know give them coconut oil or whatever you know try to try to be observant of that and if they don't seem like they're feeling bet their best when they're consuming certain foods then try rotating try some something else you know ketogenic diet is a tool right and you know this dr becker and rodney it's not like there's one diet for everybody, right? It's a tool in our tool belt. And seasonally, I think getting your body into a state of ketosis from time to time. for some people, you know, spending a long time in it, for others, shorter periods of time can be extraordinarily beneficial for our overall health. But yeah, in general, we want to stick with more real foods and you're right, most uh, you know pet enthusiasts are not making real food meals. But you can do it fairly inexpensively i mean you can get things like uh, canned wild salmon you can do eggs right some pasture raised eggs that you can throw in there you can steam up you know a little bit of extra broccoli with with uh, grass-fed and put some grass-fed butter on there you know Um, and when you do that the animal's going to eat really really well and you know i would just say try less feedings overall so sticking to one maybe two meals a day but making those meals really nutrient dense for the animal I think would be really good.
0: Dr. Jockers, Keto Metabolic Breakthrough, Resetting Your Metabolism. Where can people find the book if they wanna grab the book? Amazon and places like that are the best place to go? yeah your your favorite bookstore amazon barnes and noble you know any of those places yep well this is i you know i've gone through it it's such an incredible book broken down in layman terms you know whether you family member your pet you're looking for incredible ideas this is such a wealth of knowledge where can people find you dr jockers where's where's your best places on social media like to hang out
2: Yeah, yeah. My website, drjockers.com. And
0: you can find me, Dr. David Jockers, on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. That's so awesome. I want to thank you so much for your time. And hopefully we can bring you back again on the Mind Jam podcast in the future. And for all of you out there, thanks so much for tuning in, guys. And we'll catch you on the next podcast.